This podcast, In Solidarity Values, comradely debate and discussion. We believe that where there's disagreement, there's space to uncover a more accurate picture of what's going on. And in that spirit, we decided to do a two-part series on the Teamster election. Uh, The first features Andy and Hank, and the second features Gabriella. All of them are rank-and-file activists and socialists within the Teamsters, but they have slightly different views. In the spirit of learning and uncovering you know, a more accurate picture or a com- more complete picture, or at the very least, a picture that includes more opinions and perspectives, we thought it was worth doing. So without further ado, we're going to start the official episode now. Welcome to Solidarity Socialism from Below podcast. I'm your host, Luke Pretz. In each episode, we take the time to talk with socialists in the U.S. and abroad about local struggles they're involved with, the lessons they've learned, and how those struggles connect to the international movement for socialism. Joining me today are Andy, uh, a rank-and-file teamster, a public transit worker, a TDU member, and frequent contributor to the web magazine Tempest, and Hank, a rank-and-file teamster who works in UPS and is also a TDU member. Today we're going to be talking about rank-and-file socialist organizing in the Teamsters, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, the upcoming Teamsters election, and the recomposition of the Teamsters membership and the U.S. labor movement as a whole. Um, Welcome to Socialism from Below, Andy and Hank. I'm really, really excited to have you guys on here. Uh, One, because the Teamsters is a massive union, and it's kind of important in the context of the labor movement uh, as to what happens there. Uh, But not only that, uh, you're both socialists, and there's been an ongoing conversation in DSA talking about what kind of intervention members should make in the labor movement. And the term rank-and-file or the rank-and-file strategy or rank-and-file labor activity gets used a lot, but it gets used a lot in many different ways. I think it might be interesting to hear how you guys uh, think about what being a rank-and-file socialist and labor activist uh, means. So maybe, Andy, why don't you get us started? What What is being a rank-and-filer and a socialist um, in the labor movement mean for you? Yeah, so I mean, since people use rank-and-file in a bunch of different ways, um, I mean, I think that, that there's some confusion about it. So like a rank-and-filer literally is somebody that is not an officer or um, or staff of the union. It's somebody that does a job full or part-time and they um they're you know in the union but they don't hold a position specifically so you know if you're a steward you're still a rank and filer but if you're you know a full-time officer or a staff organizer or business agent or something like that then you're not a rank and filer um and that distinction matters because especially in the socialism from below tradition right you understand that there are different interests depending on where you are in the union that um 
that the union officialdom or bureaucracy has a distinct set of interests, which is not about fighting the boss or, or dealing with the best of their working conditions or any of that stuff. It, it's that they're an intermediary between labor and capital. And, um, and so that means that often they are trying to preserve the union, um, to minimize the risk to the union. Uh, so that means downplaying any kind of combative action with employers. Um, and also, you know, like they just don't want to do work sometimes, right? I mean, the more that you have to do union stuff as a full-time paid person, it's just more work for you. And, you know, the path of least resistance is just like, yeah, let's just get the contract done. I don't care if it's good or not, right? It's that it's done, which is something that my business agent says, right? It's like, oh, my job isn't to get you a good contract. It's to get the contract done. So those are distinct interests, right? And um, one of the things that being a socialist in the labor movement means is, understanding that there are different interests right and that rank and filers have to have to push the union structure um, and democratize it to kind of to to try and get rid of the insulation that those figures have so that way they're not um reluctant to fight or to i mean just basically represent the membership right i mean we don't even have to talk about being super combative but like just basic bread and butter unionism doesn't even really happen um that much anymore so getting the union to perform its, its tasks is more and more something that rank and filers have to push the union to do so that's it i guess in a nutshell yeah hank what, what are your thoughts uh, well with regard to like you know, the rank and file, I think it all depends on who you look towards as an agent of change. Uh, if you have the rank and file perspective, it's you look towards the union membership as a whole, you know, the, the mass of workers. Whereas if you don't, generally it's like you hope that we have a good one at the top. You hope that we have a good local president or whatever. And it's generally you're going to be disappointed if you have that perspective more often than not not to say that you know the rank and file members are are sainted but they have more of an interest i would say in changing things than the officers or bureaucrats or what have you yeah i'd like to ask a follow-up question which is do you all recognize that there's kind of maybe a, a distinction or a distinct sort of combinations of interests between rank and filers, uh, full-time paid elected leadership, and you know business agents and staff within the union and stuff like that. But that doesn't mean socialists should forego trying to intervene in those spaces, right? Like, what is socialist, uh, rank and file oriented, uh, socialism from below person in your perspective, want to like try and run president candidates and stuff like that for their locals or the, or the international? union body yeah i mean obviously right it's like it's not an abstentionist position you're not like you're not like taking an anarchist position or something like that towards the union it's by seeing that there are objective structural things going on right and they can be understood you know in the best of circumstances if you had a very democratic union you'll still face all of these like pressures from the employer so so the rank and file does need to act as a counterbalance, even when you have a good leadership and you do want a good leadership. You know, obviously leadership matters. It's just that, you know, the, the structures aren't neutral either. The union can't just be inherited and then say, all right, well, 
you know, now the good guys are in charge and, and everything's going to be solved. You need an active membership. Even the, like, you know, I, I, I th- I, I'm trying to remember exactly. I, maybe it's the Farm Equipment Workers Union, but they had like a pamphlet that, that was said explicitly that taking leadership uh, will be corrosive on us. And so we need to refresh our, our uh, union by periodically changing up the leadership. I mean, that was their own approach. And I think that that was the right one, which is, you know, you're away from the workplace and, and work fucking sucks, right? You don't want to do work if you don't have to. And if you can just, you know, work for the union, a lot of people just want to do that. So just even if the money's not good or, or whatever, like, like not having to be under the boss is a huge privilege of, of being in the union staff world, right? Uh, or an officer. And so people want to protect that. So, so understanding that, you know, you need to have some of those counter pressures is really important. I mean, and like, I, I've run for leadership in my union, like I, I, it matters a lot, especially in the Teamsters, where it's a super undemocratic union. But you know, you have to do that knowing that you're not going to go in and just be like a hero that it, it's going to require changing the way the union works. I think, that, no, this is a really interesting point, because you're kind of pointing out that it's, it's structural in the sense that it, it separates, like, you're not on the shop floor, so you don't know necessarily what's going on and, and what needs to be done precisely and the kind of the current status of the issues that need to be resolved. Is that kind of what you're saying? Or, or is it something different in the sense that it's, like, also structural in the sense that, like, once you're a union president, like, your job is about negotiating the contract. And so, yeah, I mean, or enforcing it, like depending on what job you're at. I mean, like, you know, I, I work with bus drivers and they have a very specific report time and, and super stringent rules about all kinds of stuff. And, and just like asshole supervisors. Right. And, you know, for some, a lot of people, like just getting out of there and being paid. Right. But like not having to be under those conditions where you're, you're being ground all the time, you know, um, like if you're at UPS, right, it's always about speed up and being able to have some of that like reprieve where you're not under the direct um, supervision of capital anymore that you're like, that's a pretty sweet fucking deal. Like, I, I don't want to have to work if I don't have to. And I'm not saying they don't work. What I'm saying is like, you know, the, the conditions are really different. There's a lot of, of privileges associated with that. And, and that is part of the reason why um, those interests def- like are, are at odds sometimes, right? It's like, um, if, you're, if you're working as a staff person, right? And you're like, well, the most important thing is that we get these guys good raises or something, right? But, but people on the shop floor might be like, no, I mean, the thing that really matters is our working conditions, right? I mean, the whole reason why people organize, I mean, nine times out of 10, it's not about the money. It's about, it's about power on the job. Right. And you don't experience that when you're removed from the work site. So like, you know, it, it becomes a thing that's abstract to you and it doesn't really matter as much in the same way. And, and if you're, you know, if you're running the union, you don't get a percentage of better uh, working conditions. You get a percentage of a raise as part of the dues. So those things mm-hmm. are all separated out and rank and filers always have to fight over working conditions. I mean, we just saw the, you know, Nabisco strike. And one of the huge things about that was about how much they're working and how hard, not about the money. No, that, that totally makes sense. Hank, I just want to check in and see, do you have anything you'd like to add to this conversation here? About you, you, uh, what are you fishing for here, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know if there was just anything you wanted to add to 
why is it that the rank and file strategy is so important? So Andy has indicated that there's like this this structural issue at play here. Uh, you're separated from the immediate circumstances of your work, uh, and also uh, there's there's the allure or temptation of the benefits of not being under the direct supervision of capital because you're kind of a staffer in this sort of tangential and related thing, but not not directly involved in in the labor process. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I think there's some of also people have a when when they get elected to office, they have a a di, you know an opinion that they are incorruptible. You know, th- this was something, you know, if they're a reformer, say, you know, that was something that used to happen, but it won't happen anymore. I'm thinking back when the United Mine Workers kicked out their old mobbed up leadership who literally murdered uh, their former president, the new guy who came in basically dismantled miners for democracy. And he said, well, that's we don't need that anymore. Like we're democratic now. And then within a couple of years, he was red baiting people who he had used to get into office so if you don't have i don't want to say like a a reform machine but if you don't have a structure to keep people honest they tend to you know naturally they tend to revert to the old way of doing things which usually is not in the interests of the rank and file but in either their own interests or in the interests of the the business yeah and and this conversation is making me think kind of about the labor uh, movement in, in, as a microcosm of kind of anti-capitalist politics in general, uh, right? Like w- we can elect officials, uh, progressive types or, or socialist uh, elected officials, but unless there's an active movement of working people to enforce the demands that they elected those people on, the, the likelihood that they're going to deliver on those things is minimal, not just because it takes constant pressure on the state to extract those demands, but also if there's no pressure on them to to be accountable to the demands that they ran on, it makes it easier for them to let them off the hook or for them to, to slide. And so I guess, you know, maybe this is going to be a recurring theme through this conversation, but, but the big and most important thing here in these sort of attempts to democratize our unions or democratize society in general is that it's it's an ongoing and kind of protracted struggle. Just because you get one win that partially democratizes things or improves things doesn't mean that win is permanent. It's something that needs to be struggled over and um, pushed for continually until, you know, you get the big win, which is socialism. Um, And maybe this is a good time for us to transition to something Teamster specific, which is that there's an upcoming election. And interestingly, there's an opportunity for a break with the uh, Hoffa leadership. This isn't this isn't the Hoffa from the seventies. This is a, this is his son, uh, but he's been in charge of the Teamsters uh, for quite a while now since Ron Carey, I think, in nineteen ninety seven. And so I think you know this is a big opportunity. the The last pres- Teamster presidential election, uh, there was a challenger Zuckerman who was narrowly defeated. He won a majority, I think, in the. U.S., but in, in, in the Canadian shops, he didn't win enough uh, to secure a victory. And so that let Hoffa have one more go. And so maybe could you tell me a little bit about what happened since that last presidential election and, and what's going on now? Uh, I, I could talk about that, I guess. So at, it, the Teamster elections are 
and I'll, I'll speak as a UPSer's perspective because we are, you know, the largest contract that the Teamsters negotiate, but the elections occur two years before the UPS contract is up. So the election was conducted in 2016. The most recent UPS contract was voted on in 2018. And the 2018 contract was frankly pretty lousy uh, in terms of things like wages. You know, it, it raised wages for part-timers to $13 an hour, which is pretty criminally low. I mean, now now they're up to $15.33 an hour. Then we, there was also the creation of a, a new job classification that basically undercuts wages of drivers. The technical term for it is 22-4s, which basically they, they can pay you to do either inside work and you'd be paid more to do inside work or they can pay you to drive or you'd be paid less than drivers so it doesn't take a genius to figure out that they the company would save more money by paying people less to drive so they almost never use them for inside work it's all driving but there was a big campaign a concerted effort to get people to vote this contract down and it was in fact voted down it was voted down uh i want to say 54 to 46, but I'm not a mathematician, so maybe you should check me on that. But there is an undemocratic provision in the Teamsters Constitution, or rather there was, that says if there's not a two-thirds turnout for the election, the international union can impose this contract undemocratically, which is what happened. And that's created a lot of, a lot of uh, anger and dissatisfaction in the UPS ranks. Uh, which I think has become a key campaign issue in this upcoming election is, will we get a decent contract this time around? Yeah, that's the sense I got too. And so one of the people in that's running for president, uh, kind of the Teamsters United, which is different than Teamsters for a Democratic Union, very similar initials, but it's a joint slate between Sean O'Brien, who is a former Hoffa or like a former administration, administrative caucus, former kind of aligned with Hoffa union leader. And he was on the contract bargaining team, right, along with um, Zuckerman, who was also on the team. But Zuckerman was removed. Yes. So so basically what happened is that O'Brien, who was made some effort to reach out to Zuckerman, who represents Local 89 in Louisville, which is where the big airport is for UPS, which employs, I mean, thousands upon thousands of people. And, I mean, it it makes, I mean, just complete logical sense why he would want to do that, because how are you going to negotiate a contract with having, like, the biggest facility locked out? And Hoffa, of course didn't like this and fired O'Brien from the bargaining committee because, you know, he viewed it as, as tantamount to betrayal. Like, why are you going to work with this guy who was just running against me and almost beat me? Let's let's go back a bit because I, I'm assuming that people know next to nothing about the Teamsters Union, right? I mean, like, the Teamsters have a big cultural footprint, right? Like, we, we, we hear about organized crime and how tough the Teamsters are. But nobody actually knows anything about them, especially not since, the, like, the 70s, right? 
So, so as quick as I can, I mean, the, the Teamsters are um, a logistics and transportation union primarily, right? Teamsters mean it's like about the horses that would team goods around on a cart. And then, you know, as the union kind of grew, it, you know, took on more of trucking and warehousing and stuff like that. And the union is extremely decentralized, right? Um, it's very much built around local unions. Um, and, and it sort of by necessity had to form more of an international that has been in conflict with the locals because of the existence of things like the UPS contract and, and the Teamsters ma- uh, Master Freight Agreement, right? And the Teamster Master Freight Agreement was a, was a big thing at the time, which, um, you know, Teamsters negotiated multiple multi-employer deals for truckers across the country which was a huge agreement and it also had this enormous pension plan so you know uh, just a stellar agreement but um at the same time uh jimmy hoffa who ran the union was mobbed up right like clearly connected to organized crime until he disappeared in the 70s and the union was um was controlled you know had organized crime connections through the 80s Teamsters for a Democratic Union forms in the late 70s um, in response to, you know, how just miserable the experience of being a Teamster is, but also how powerful the union is, right? Logistics, transportation, it's a very powerful part of the economy. Then, um, in part because of the work of TDU, the Teamsters, uh, they win the right to direct elections in 1989. So the federal government recoed the union for organized crime. And as part of trying to figure out what to do with it, Teamsters for a Democratic Union proposed direct elections, which was kind of unheard of at the time and won. And then as a result of that, was able to elect you know, the first president um, directly, which was Ron Carey. Ron Carey, um, a lot of stuff there, but basically ran the successful 1997 UPS strike, which is huge. And uh, as a reward for that, um, the employers and the federal government had him removed from the union. And since then, Jimmy Hoffa Jr. has run the union. So, you know, that that that's kind of the, the prelude to everything that's happening right now. And Jimmy Hoffa Jr. Um, has never been a working teamster in his life. He's a lawyer, but he got picked for the name. And you had all these guys who, you know, were unhappy with the uh, direction of of um, Ron Carey and basically put up this guy so that way they could re- take control of the union. And they've had it for 25 years. So what's happening in this election is it's the first time that there won't be a Jimmy Hoffa um, in the 2016 election he was he narrowly won the election um jimmy hoffa did so it was i want to say just a few thousand votes shy of of awarding the election to fred zuckerman um who was the challenger a a little correction to your thing is that um hoffa won the east and western districts um and teamsters canada but zuckerman won central and south not that that matters but whatever so you, the way that you framed it to go back to your question after like four minutes of whatever is that you know uh, there there's a potential for a break here and I, I think this is the the cause of, of some real debate because as you pointed out uh, Sean O'Brien who's now leading the quote unquote reformer ticket has been uh, a Hoffa guy for pretty much his entire career right so he ran with hoffa during the during the last election he was on the hoffa hall slate and and the dude is is 
super ambitious, right? I mean, he's aggressive. He wants to run the union. And then he got fired from the UPS bargaining. I I think, I'm not entirely sure why. I mean, Hank, um, you know, it's a good point about, is it because he was working with Zuckerman to try to get it done? I'm not sure. Um, He had his hand in putting some pretty shitty deals together for UPSers, right? I mean, there's there's no question about that. But I think the bigger thing is that um, if you're looking at a a next election, which is this one in 2021, and you're saying, I want to run the union, how am I going to win that election? Uh, Maybe I'll go with the guys who nearly just toppled the king here. And if he lost the Eastern District and I can deliver the Eastern District, then that's a winning ticket, right? And that I think is is what frames so much of this in a in a really difficult way is that you have um, the Teamsters United slate, which was put together with TDU and you know people that were unhappy with Hoffa, but not necessarily reformers in 2016. And then Mar- uh, sorry, Fred Zuckerman was a reluctant head of that ticket in 2016. He did not really want to be president. And uh, so then here comes Sean O'Brien, who says, well, I really want to be president. And the two of them agree. Well, how about this? Why don't I just give you Teamsters United and you run at the top? I'll run number two. And then there we go. And we have uh, we've got a winning slate. Uh, what that means for Teamsters is um, is very complicated. Right. Um, TDU endorsed the slate. But, you know, the, the reality of who's attached to this makes it really hard to navigate. So in my opinion, and I'm sure, Hank, you'll have different opinion, it's not a clear break from Hoffa. It's two sections of the Hoffa leadership that are on two slates. So you've got the Teamster Power, Steve Varma slate, which is clearly the direct continuation. And then you've got Teamsters United that has a bunch of other Hoffa people that are attached to it now. Yeah, Hank, why don't you hop in here and kind of give us a little bit of your analysis? Well, I mean, I've been involved uh, with the Teamsters United campaign a little bit, both in my facility and also in other UPS facilities in the metro Detroit area. I think no nobody in the industry uh, who works there, who's paying any attention to the union or to the election, wants Verma Herrera, that's the Teamster power slate in. You know, Verma at the the debates seemed like I almost felt bad for him how pathetic his performance was because he he basically claimed that our contract at UPS is like the best that we're ever gonna get. He surrendered on the issues of two tier wages. He wants them to put surveillance cameras in our our delivery vehicles. You know, it's it's almost you know, I almost wondered if he's like a plant that they that the O'Brien Zuckerman people put in to ensure that nobody at UPS would vote for him. So I think I mean I think there's potential in a very narrow way to get us a better contract at UPS, but and hopefully through that, it you know the contract would be like an organizing document that we could take to others in the logistics industry. Who are not Teamsters, I'm thinking particularly of, of FedEx and Amazon and be like, well, why, you know, why don't you sign up with us? Like we have all these benefits because right now, if you have the, if you look at the UPS contract and you shop it around to these other places, it's like, well, 
you know, I, I'm not getting a whole lot here out of being in this union, so why would I want to? You can't get new members if you're selling out the members you already have. Amazon pays so, more than UPS right now. To, to, to start, start, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this is I think this is an interesting thing, right? And I think I think Hank, thanks for bringing this in because this is like part of the tension, right? Like as Andy pointed out, O'Brien does have this like Hoffa associated history. And you know, I think that, that's something to be considered. Uh, but as you're pointing out, Hank, uh, there's also like the very real point that the the Teamster power ticket, uh, the Verima ticket, is is a, certainly a net negative for the Teamsters. There's zero benefit to them because it's going to be continuation of not enforcing the contract and a continuation of forcing Teamsters to take up a contract that's concessionary uh, and inadequate and a continuation of two-tier wage systems, which is something I'm familiar with as someone who's a UAW worker. Right. It's been disastrous for the way that we've been able to negotiate contracts just because they've got this super low wage workforce that's in the union now. And, you know, it's, kind of, you know, anyways, there's lots of stuff we could say about that. But so you have this. So we know that certainly the Teamsters United ticket is probably net positive. But I guess this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where there's this tension. You can you can elect a new leadership uh, that might be partially reformer with Zuckerman uh, and his associates, and then also maybe partly uh, retaining a lot of the legacy of the Hoffa administration, right? This sort of top-down approach. And so on the one hand, it potentially closes a lot of things off, right? Because it's, oh, we seem like we have a reformer, so now time to relax. But in fact, this just means that we need to push harder as rank-and-filers. Is, is that a correct sort of position, or or am I hitting on something useful here? Well, no, I, I think you're broadly correct. There are certainly contradictions and uh, within the, the Oz campaign and whether that'll be exploited or not. I mean, history will, you know, history will tell, but it, compared to the Teamster Power uh, slate, I mean, there's no contradictions there. They just want, you know, they want to sell us out, essentially. <laughs> I, I mean, let, let me make something explicitly clear. Hank is completely right that the Verma people are, are, you know, unapologetically just like business unionists who think that, that everything is great and are, are aggressively about staying the same, uh, which is bad. So it, the, the question is less about that. It's like, I, I don't I don't think that anybody's going to be seriously entertaining the Teamster Power thing. It's really more about how you relate to um, O'Brien Teamsters United. And, and that question is made difficult for a few reasons. Um, one is that in the Teamsters, the general president overwhelmingly runs the union, right? Like there's, yes, there's a, the general board, but it has almost no power. So that number one spot matters quite a lot. And when it's not Zuckerman and it's O'Brien, right, that changes things in very complicated ways. Uh, um, I think it's soft peddling to say that O'Brien is just a Hoffa associated former guy. I mean, the dude has had charges brought up against him for threatening Teamster members directly and at conventions. 
he, you know, his local got busted and his members were uh, brought up on extortion charges, right? And caught on video doing like racist shit, right? So this is not a great look for for a potential reform slate. And and it it, it makes a lot of sense if you're a UPSer that 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 issue is is crystal clear, right? It's about whether someone's going to say I'm I'm happy with this shitty contract and you're going to get more of it or somebody that says this could be better. No question, right? It has to be the guy that's saying it's going to be better. But the union is more than UPS. And and that's that's where Verma is is hitting his stride is because Verma is following the Hoffa strategy, which is to say that there's 1.4 million teamsters 300,000 of them are UPSers. That means there's a million and more who are not attached to any of that stuff. And what do those people think? And that's how Hoffa was able to win for 25 years is because he had allied local officers and then they would go out and tell people that don't ha- don't give two shits about what happens at the international. Hey, it's time to vote. You know to vote for the for the good guys, right? And that's Hoffa. And then they go, "Okay, and that's how he is able to win. So these are the two competing strategies is you've got Verma, who's going to go with the Hoffa strategy uh, for good reason. That's why he does. He's not even trying to appeal to UPS. He knows he's not going to win UPS. 70% of UPS went for Zuckerman last election. It's just a waste of his fucking time, right? Uh, O'Brien knows that is luck for him and that the biggest thing is to turn out those votes. So he's got to really hammer that, and um, and and also consider that less than a fifth of teamsters fucking vote in these things, right? Like, uh, I think what was it like two hundred and fifty thousand or fewer teamsters actually cast ballots last time. So you know you're 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 really playing a turnout game, and and that's that's the big difference here. So for Verma, who is now representing a union that has left its core industries of logistics and all that stuff, he's got cannery workers, people at hospitals, like people at weed facilities and, all, you know, just like whatever. It's a general union now that he um, he's trying to play to his strengths. And that's that's why he's coming across the way he is. And that's what's splitting people that are not reformers, right, is about what's their sectional interests. The reformers are having their own problem because it's like kind of like the miners for democracy thing that Hank said before, which is, yeah, like, let's get somebody better than the the guy that's in there. Um, But then what happens to the reform organization? So I want to go to this point about kind of the changing face of Teamsters here in a bit. But I kind of what we're talking about here, and maybe this is totally off base, but it it kind of reminded me of I'm going to totally misquote this, this uh, Mao Zedong quote. that's like uh, chaos in the heavens and all is good. Uh, In many ways, this does kind of open up a lot of potential for uh, reform slates to gain traction in locals and maybe in the international as well, because you have the Hoffa grouping split between O'Brien and and Verma. And then you have like it kind of opens up some maneuvering space now because it's not just two competing factions. It could now be three. You have uh, the the TDU aligned. You have the O'Brien people. And then you have, you know, uh, Hoffa legacy. I don't know. Is is that a I 
that's my kind of read on the situation, or maybe this is overly optimistic, but it does seem like this does like create potential for a stronger reform movement. Yeah, I was going to say, it would be nice if TDU could claim like a win at the national level. I mean, I'm sure that would be pretty... That, that would probably be good in terms of not just morale, but maybe attracting some new people, which is what we need. But other than that, you know, I, I don't like to forecast because, you know, I, I'm not, I can't see into the future. But, and, uh, you know, if I say something very optimistic, you know, I'll probably be undercut. And if I say something pessimistic, I might get surprised. But, you know, I, I, I think it, I think it would be beneficial if, you know, Verma and uh, Herrera were defeated, but to what degree, I, who can say? I can't. I, I think that you would be right, Luke, if the reformers and TDU were a clear independent poll in this, but they're not, and we're not. So yes, the, the Hoffa leadership is split. And when I say split, I mean split, because um, at the delegate count for this last convention, O'Brien Teamsters United had like 52% and Verma Teamster Power had 48% or something, give or take a percent or two, right? So that's a split delegation. But the, the issue is, what does that translate to? Because in 2016, right, you know how many delegates Zuckerman Teamsters United had at that point? 8%, okay? Which meant that the the huge rift between the rank and file that voted like 48% of rank and filers against the Hoffa leadership that were 92% aligned, right, are now part of this this split coalition and not their own thing. And and that's that's a big strategic question, right? I mean, I, I think that TDU has its reasons mm-hmm. for doing that, but I mean, what they've done is attached their their whole organization, our whole organization. I fuck it, I'm a TDU member. Why am I saying they? To to um, a section of the old leadership, and and that means that they'll rise or fall with it. And and I'm not super optimistic about what that means with Sean O'Brien at the head. That's what you know. It would be a great time, chaos in the heavens, and all would be great. You know, because then you you've got a split leadership, not a Hoffa singular leadership. You got two wings. What would a third have been? I'm not sure. Um, it, it, and like yeah, like it, that that's kind of playing general a little bit, but but for the situation, I, I think it, it puts people in a very difficult spot. And we could end up um, being super disoriented on the on the back end. Yeah, I guess, I guess, kind of playing off of what both of you were saying, like the key determinant here, and is to what degree are rank and filers going to step up, uh, and be energized by this and demand not only a better contract but more democratic circumstances in their locals, uh, and internationally. And you know, I think. If we're going to talk about the International Teamsters Union or the labor movement in general, I think we really have to address what you were saying earlier, Andy, which is that, like, the Teamsters isn't just a logistics union anymore, you know, just like the UAW, where you have people who are health and human service workers, preschool teachers, people like myself who are uh, teaching assistants at colleges, things like that. You have this huge diversification uh, in a union. And it kind of creates an interesting, it creates a real situation because historically the union has been focused on one type of pattern contract. The, you know, in the UAW, it's the the 
Ford GM and, you know, whatever the third one is at the time, Chevy or whomever. I can't remember off the top of my head because they changed so much, especially in in, in the uh, post-recession era. But same in the Teamsters, right? You have UPS and YRC, which have been historically the big contracts and what the Teamsters have been all about. But now that they've been accumulating all these other smaller shops, smaller locals uh, with a variety of different interests and, and, and kind of types of work, um, it produces a situation that's that's very open-ended, right? Uh, and but also very easy for uh, kind of the existing uh, top-down leadership to take advantage of because they're so diffuse and there's not a lot of overlap in terms of the contracts that are being bargained. I, I, what do you? What is your sense in the Teamsters of how this kind of uh, diversification of the union in terms of the type of work? Can that's I being say organized? something? Uh, so on, on one hand, I think it's the the attitude you go hunting go where the it. ducks are because there have not only been cases of, you know, us organizing people who are way outside what you would consider traditional industries in the Teamsters. Like the last magazine I got from the International Union was bragging that we had gotten some firefighters out in California. And I thought, well, they have an international union already. Why are they Teamsters? Why aren't they in that? But there's also been cases of just out-and-out raiding of, like, public sector employees and, uh, like, prison guards in Florida, I want to say, and stuff like that. It's just quick, easy victories that you can sell to the membership. Like, oh, we got, you know, a thousand people here, a thousand people there. But it's not, you know, you're not making the labor movement any bigger. You're not making the labor movement any stronger. You're just you know, we're getting bigger at the expense of other unions. And at the same time, you let things like FedEx, like Amazon, like um, Expo, who are all non-union, continue to under... Well, there was that one victory in Expo, but that that doesn't really count. But anyway, you let them uh, continue uh, to undercut you know, our existing contracts because UPS can look and say, well, you know, FedEx pays this much and this few benefits, you know, you need to give up more. So I I think it's led to a a weakening of the union, even as like membership numbers, you know, belie that. Um, Okay. So, so the, the question, though, like about the diversification of the union, it, it, it's a little um, it's a little misleading because it makes it sound like, oh, we're expanding beyond like Hank was saying, like which we're not. This is all happening in the context where union membership has plummeted. Right. And and so the reason why unions have um, taken up outside of their industries is because there's just a mad grab for members anywhere you can find them. So to some extent, yeah, it's a, it, it's a willful retreat, but you know, I think more it's like, look, I mean, the public sector is like 5% or sorry, the private sector is like 5% or less organized now. So the bulk of union membership is actually now coming from the public sector. So so what this indicates, I think, is that they, this is a, a big defeat and people uh, like unions are really looking for how are they going to get any membership and maintain some sort of size and presence. And, and they're they're leaving their their, you know, traditional domains to do that. 
I mean, this is described really well in Steve Early's book, The Civil Wars in U.S. Labor, where, I mean, this was about, you know, the early 2000s when the AFL-CIO split because SEIU said they wanted to organize new people. And it just ended up being these raids and, and just fucking back and forth attacks about who could gobble up each other's members, right? It was It was a very fixed pool. It wasn't like we're going to get new members out. It's a, It was a zero-sum game. Um, so that's a crisis, right, of the organized labor movement. And um, and the same is true now. Part of that has to do with the fact that unions have um, been acclimated to, to a regimen of collective bargaining and a legal framework, right? Like, like, when you ask about, like, okay, how did big unions get formed, right? Did we go through and have these one-by-one elections where we're like, hello, GM, I'm going to collect cards now? And the, no, they, they, they had to sit down strike, right? They forced recognition, and, and that's how most of these large bargaining units were formed, right? The, the legality kind of came afterwards, and the but um, but they got used to it, right? This is part of the issue what we were talking about earlier about the distinction between rank and file organizing and, and sort of the the tendencies of the officialdom, right? Is that the legality is so precious, and that's not usually what's all that enticing. So like yes, FedEx is under the rail um, railway labor law, right? which is harder to organize under, and, and yeah, that's a legal thing for sure. But, you know, it, it's like a kind of deference to, to that regime and to believing that you ally with Democrats and they will deliver better conditions for you and that'll solve your problem for you, which it won't, right? So, so I mean, I think that, that that's a big part of it. And the Teamsters are like that just as much as everybody else. I mean, like they asked us earlier this year, uh, or sorry, last year to take a poll about who did we want for president. Never released it, Right. Uh, and I, I have a suspicion about why that is. One, a lot of Teamsters wanted to vote for Trump, right? A significant number, I would suspect, or for Bernie Sanders. And who did they go for? Of course, Biden, right? But you can't release that. So I think that they, and, and during the debate, they said the same thing, which is, well, don't you think a lot of Teamsters are in Trump country now? And yeah, yeah, but, uh, but you know the Teamsters are Democrats, right? That that was their response, and that's that's part of a of a calculated response. Well, yeah, Andy, when you talk about the the legalistic ways that organized labor is done, I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes from The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller, which is, uh, "Of course we're criminals. We've always been criminals. We have to be criminals." I mean the the word like syndicate is used for both unions and like latin latin language countries and for criminal enterprises like organized labor is outside of the polite society you know <laughs> uh but also when you see pictures of labor leaders you know shaking hands with corporate america or with these politicians it's like something has been lost and that is why we're in the shape that we are nowadays because these were people who 70 years ago would have would have kicked the crap out of us and it's like they haven't changed what they want hasn't changed we've changed and look at where we are yeah and i think this is actually hitting on the point that i wanted to get to next which is you know it seems like in some ways there's an opportunity for socialists uh, and people who want to be involved in, in rank and file labor activity. 
I think one of the goals of socialists who are entering into labor should be to like increase militancy and to, and to move beyond the, just this sort of not only narrow legalistic but like kind of sort of reliance on 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 the government to to enforce better conditions rather than uh, the workers enforcing better con- working conditions on their employers directly. And so you know how do how do socialists, whether they're in the DSA or socialist alternative or, or wherever they are, um, who are interested in getting involved in labor, what should they be doing? How, how, what do you think is step number one for, for maybe individual socialists, but also, you know, what do you think groups of rank and filers uh, who, who identify as socialists should be doing as people in the labor movement in this moment? That's, it's a labor movement deeply in flux. Well, no, I mean, number one is to join the union if you have it. I, unfortunately, when I was an insider at UPS, my steward was number one, a diehard Trump guy. I say was, he still is, uh, both my steward and a diehard Trump guy, but also, and he didn't want to sign anybody up for the union. So I kind of had to help people out to get them to be members. So that's, I mean, that's number one. And that kind of speaks to the sorry shape that we're in. But then also, you know, I, you know, in my local, one of the things I wanted to do was to get people out to help uh, one of our sister locals who represented like seven up workers who were on strike. So I put up, you know, flyers of my own volition, like, hey, come out here and don't buy any of these products while they're on strike. So I I think those are two, you know, pretty easy ways for people you know to get involved well i mean there's a there's a lot of different ways you could take a cut at this um i mean the first thing is right which is start with where you are right like i people set themselves up to fail a lot when they think i'm gonna go rank and file like i didn't like i wasn't like okay i'm gonna go get this like i was like i need a job I'm going to go get a job at a place where I think I can work, right? And I was like, oh, it's a Teamster job. That's great, right? So so that was, you know, circumstance. But but I think a lot of people, right, um, you know, you come from a, a social background where it's like, okay, well, I, I'm used to, I don't know, warehouse working. And now should I go get a job at, at an office? Like, it, it just doesn't feel like a good fit and vice versa, right? People that mostly have worked retail, it's like, oh, um, should I go be a steel worker right now to rank and file? Like, it's a very difficult social transition, right? So uh, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying, like, think about what kind of work you can sustain. Otherwise, it will never work, right? So um, there's plenty of people that want to, you know, that are used to working retail or whatever. And if you want to organize Amazon, yeah, maybe you could work at an Amazon warehouse, but you could also work at a Whole Foods, which is owned by Amazon now, right? I mean, you're, you're fighting the same company. It's different. But, you know, start with where you are and what you can actually do, because if you hate your job and you can't sustain yourself, it's never going to work. Right. So there's that. Second is that this is a really hard thing to do. Right. To to, you know, be thinking about work politically um, and it's exhausting and it's frustrating and, and you need comrades to do it with. Right. So so huge thing that I would say is you know, meet with folks that are, are doing it also. It doesn't have to be the same workplace. If it's the same one, that's amazing. But, you know, we're usually not so lucky. But, you know, just kind of work through um, what, what's going on today. What kinds of stuff are you are you 
trying to get done? What are the problems? You know, and, and people share connections or, or insights or whatever. That, that's huge. I and mean, sometimes just the emotional support, big deal. And I know that that's not like the, the most political answer right now, but I, I just don't think you can do politics unless you, you're set up, right? And then after that, I, I think really you, you have to start to give yourself an orientation towards the union. That's a rank and filers orientation. Most people today get trained about how unions work and what to do by the union or by union staff, right? Sometimes they worked for the union. Like a lot of people go to college and then they get a job right out the gate. And then they're like, Jane McAlevey's the greatest. It's like, yes, because you also work for a union. That's right. But, you know, you have to start to think about right? Like what is the grievance process, right? The grievance process is a compromise between labor and management. And it's a historical thing, right? What's the limits of some of these things? What, how does this all work? And how do you take it to as far as it can go, right? So I, I think that those, you know, maybe are not the most concrete answers for you right now, but, um, but it's a big part of, of being successful. No, I, I think those are totally applicable and concrete. Like, I think, you know, starting where you're at is, I think, great advice. Like, you'd be amazed at, you know, how much, one, you know, as I was worried when I got active in the UAW as a rank and filer and as a reform-oriented union activist uh, that, you know, people would not be cool with someone who's not, you know, on on the factory floor. But what you find out is, you know, if there's an active reform movement, and even if there's not an active one, when you meet other reformers, even if they aren't in the same exact type of work that you're doing, or even if you're, even if it's not same exact type or like slightly different, it's radically different. You know, someone, you know, being a TA and someone who's, you know, on the assembly line, because you're interested in doing reform within the union and because you're interested in making the conditions of the union better for everyone and, and, and more democratic for everyone and opening up space for increased union militancy, they're going to be cool. They're, they're going to be into it. They're going to want to work with you because you have the same sort of goals in mind. You know, and I think the other thing that's important is, like you said, find other people, you know, ideally other people in your union. And it doesn't have to be the big campaign that you're going to do right away. It could just be, hey, we're going to get together and talk about our union. You know, you might find people who are you aren't sure of what their politics are. Or you aren't sure what how invested they are in union reform stuff. But you don't know until you talk to them. And so just figuring out a time to get coffee or beers with people after your, after your job and say, hey, here's something I'm seeing in my local. Are you seeing this? Or, hey, this is what's happening in my part of the shop. Is this something you're seeing? Is there something we can do about it? And, like, have a little humility and be willing to listen to them and identify, oh yeah, we do have this. Like one issues. of the things that people often do is like they go in thinking that they're the class warrior and they know all the stuff and that everybody hasn't heard of it before. Most people have plenty of gripes, right? And 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 the thing is is about building up that social fabric, right? Where you, you actually know each other, you have a relationship, there's trust, right? And you don't build that by going and telling somebody about their life, right? You, you own who you are and people respect that. Like if you pretend that you have a different, you know, story than you do, then people are going to smell the bullshit, right? They, they know. But, you know, after that, it's really like, to some extent, you, you see that all of the energy is usually there already. People understand 
you know, to a large extent that the company does this and that, right? But but usually it's that they don't have the ability to action that. And and uh, not always, but, you know, sometimes the union is the source of, of, the, of the blockage there, right? Is that if you ask people, what should we do in response to this issue, they would probably say, well, we should stop that right now and do whatever we can to do that. And that's usually why unions don't ask is because then they'd have to do that. Yeah, and I think I think there's, yeah, like having a holistic conversation about the situation is important uh, with your workers that you're working with. But also, I think, you know, building up that social fabric and and, and doing it patiently and, and with the intent to build trust with people, I think, is, is key. And this is actually something that came up with uh, my conversation with uh, Kansas City tenants is that was their principle was like moving at the speed of trust. You know, if you're coming in and you're trying to do everything now as you see it ought to be done, you know, you might attract a few people, but that's not that's not how you build a mass movement. And that's not how you build a mass movement like democratically, right? Building something democratic requires patience, requires building trust, and it requires involving as many people as you can in that process as possible. I think Hank also said something really key uh, about like, identifying a campaign that you could organize around and a space that is accessible to people to get involved with, you know, and that was the, the seven up campaign, you know, it, you know, don't be afraid to put yourself out there, uh, especially when it's something that, you know, people are going to support, which is, Hey, we should support our union siblings at the seven up plant. We're at about almost an hour. We're going to take it in for landing. Does anyone have anything else that they want to add before we take a Take it to a close. Any don't uh, don't be the guy that everybody else has to work harder because of. If you're going to be a labor organizer, you better be competent enough at doing your job because nobody wants to listen to somebody who is like stumbling around and really half-assing it because they are not going to like you. Frankly, if you're going to have a union job and work in a union shop, do the job to the best of your ability now don't be you know a kiss up to management or anything like that don't over don't overperform, but perform i mean if if you're in a position where you're a union worker with a contract know thy contract right the contract is the bible and and you better know that thing better than the company knows that um and, and Hank is 100% right that you have to be an excellent worker because if you're going to make some trouble, then it's going to be coming down after you, and that's for any reason. So you better be excellent at your job. Um, if you're not um, in a union workplace or, or your union doesn't have a contract, don't let that stop you. The organizing comes first, okay? It's it's like you, you don't organize a thing called a union. You organize people, Right. Um, and, and people forget that. And if you want to put it in quaint terms, you got to put the social in being a socialist. Right. Like you, you have to, to know people, have relationships and trust. And, and it's the that's the basis of your power, not not the law. Right. The contract, the law, that's a tool that you use along the way. It's not a substitute. And I think people forget that, especially when when they're really new to it and it's all cool and you get to wear your, you know, union logo on your T-shirt and you're part of the super cool club now. Right. Which like, I mean, it's fucking cool. Like, there's no doubt about it. Um, That's why that exists. Right. That culture matters to us. Um, 
but you know most people these days have no experience with unions like that this is like a, a historic rift now where so few people are in unions that we don't actually know what they are or how they work and i think socialists need to understand that in a very clear way on on the way about what a union is for class struggle and not what it is as um as you know a like an insurance company that collects dues right like we have to understand that both of those worlds coexist and uh and find our way through that right otherwise um you know there, there's no way that it's going to work great um so do you guys have any you know websites people should follow or social media people should follow before uh i'm on letterboxd <laughs> as as hank kennedy um hold on i well so first of all i'm on twitter at uh comrade robocop then i uh like i said i'm on letterboxd if you want that that good uh horror movie content because that's all i watch for the months of september and october that's that's about it anything else people wouldn't be interested in well let me pump hank for a second because he's a man of a few words as as you may have noticed um hank's an excellent excellent writer um great reviews on comics and movies and um just a really good labor reporter um so so definitely follow hank on on whatever um I, I mean, I, I would be remiss if I didn't pump Tempest. Um, so it's tempestmag.org. We do a lot. It's a so- socialist publication, but um, there's a whole lot of labor reporting. Um, I will have an article on the Teamsters in, in these times later this month. So check that out if you were interested in all of what's going on with this election. You can follow me on Twitter at andcern, A-N-D-S-E-R-N. Um, if you like spicy takes on things about DSA that a lot of people hate or just graphs and stuff like that. Um, and I also have a Patreon, I guess, which is the same thing, which is A-N-D-S-E-R-N. So um, that's, that's my stuff. And as always, you should listen to this podcast because it's very good. Th- thanks for the uh, the boost there, Andy. Boosting boosting socialism from below signal. Um, you know, I'd, I'd say also if you're really interested in labor stuff, uh, if you want to learn about how to be a good labor organizer, um, you cannot miss with Labor Notes. Um, I'll put a link to their uh, website in the show notes. They have lots of great educational stuff, like the book that I learned how to be a successful organizer, Secrets of a Successful Organizer. And read Joe Burns's books. Um, you you would do yourself a disservice if you're not reading Reviving the Strike strike back and his new book that's coming out um next year which is class struggle unionism his blog is killer too i mean he's fucking great so so lots of amazing resources what i'm going to do is i'm going to put all of those in the show notes and also if you've been listening to this podcast through the solidarity website you can access it on most podcasting apps go there it helps us in the algorithms it's amazing follow us subscribe whatever the action is on your preferred platform do it. If you're using iTunes, be sure to give us a review to help us move up the charts. Rank us. Give us uh, one of those five-star reviews as well. You know, we've got a perfect record. Help us keep it up. But also, written reviews are amazing and incredibly helpful. If you like this conversation and want to keep up with what Socialism From Below and our friends are doing, follow us at Socialism From 
That's not the Twitter. Follow us at SOC from below, and you'll get lots of great content when I'm not busy hunting for jobs. Uh, But I'm going to try and keep up there. If you like what you heard on today's episode and you want to find out more about Solidarity, check out our website, www.solidarity-us.org. You can find us on Twitter, at SolidarityUS, on Instagram, at Solidarity1986, and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash SolidarityUS. I'd also encourage you to check out our comrades at the Socialist Journal Against the Current on their website, www.againstthecurrent.org, all one word. And you can also find them on Twitter at ATC underscore mag and on Instagram at ATC dot mag. Thanks again for our amazing producer, James, who may or may not cut the cusses out for all of this work that he does. He's a fantastic sound editor and makes me and all of our guests sound fantastic. And the show wouldn't happen without him. Also, if you like the theme song, he's the guy that produced it. So you can go find it at uh, the streaming websites by searching Boptimism, B-O-P-T-I-M-I-S-M of the will. Thanks again for listening, comrades. And until next time, solidarity forever. (laughs) 